very warm welcome to Rev, if you're uh, not familiar with Rev, my name's Steph, one of the pastors here, and um, what we're doing in terms of a preaching series between now and Easter is is that we are following in the Gospel of Luke the last week in the life of Jesus from the moment where he enters into Jerusalem and then the point where he is crucified and and, and raised from the dead. So um, whereas I guess normally in churches on the Easter weekend you might sort of focus on the triumphal entry and Palm Sunday the, the week before the Easter weekend and, and everything gets condensed. We thought, why don't we take a couple of months to really get in depth so that you guys really get a chance to engage with the story. And then when Easter comes, we would have been in that build-up for a couple of months. So that's how we are approaching it. But it's a couple of weeks ago at Jesus' entry into Jerusalem where he's fulfilling the prophecy of the king coming on a donkey and helped us understand why everyone was so excited about it as he fulfilled uh, that hundreds years old prophecy. And then last week we looked at Jesus in the temple, clearing out the temple, turning over the tables, turning over the chairs of the money changers and really, I guess, establishing um, in a very powerful way the fact that God wants his people to be able to come into his presence uh, undistracted. He doesn't want things like uh, greed and selfishness to get in the way. And we see the zeal of Jesus in that. And then what we're going to do now is um, we're going to look at how the tensions begin to rise in the relationship particularly between Jesus and the religious leaders of the day. It's really important that you understand what goes on here because on a human level this is what led to Jesus' crucifixion. Over the last few years, there have been tensions building with things like Jesus doing things on the Sabbath that the religious leaders really were not happy with, and saying controversial things, being fairly confrontational. Um, But here is where it really builds to a climax, where um, those who, uh, in the end, plot his downfall are having these interactions with him, and you see the tension build and build and build. Um, you'll, you'll come across in the passage we read today four terms for these leaders. One is um, you've got the chief priests, you've got the scribes, you've got the elders, and you've got the Sadducees. Now, there are perhaps two other groups, the lawyers and the Pharisees, that we read about throughout the Gospels, but really these are describing different roles of leadership within Jewish society in these days. Um, and essentially, we have a cross section. Different conversations Jesus has with chief priests here and then the Sadducees there and the elders here. But really what we're being let in on is the fact that the religious establishment and Jesus are now at odds. And it's a, it's a really important uh, kind of one for us to grapple with because there's a, quite a common mindset there. Who has ever said or heard someone say to them, I'm really not religious but I am spiritual. Anyone said that or heard someone been in a conversation with someone saying that? It's really, really common. Um, But this would not have been common in the UK, I guess. Um, Me and one of my children were talking recently about some of the difficulties, challenges they're facing at school as a Christian, some of the things they're facing. And they said to me, what was it like in your day? Like, oh, you know. And we thought back, and I said, in the 1980s, which is when I was at secondary school, in... In the, 90, in the 1980s, I said, for us, it was is that no one believed in the supernatural. No one was interested in, the, in spiritual things. In fact, if you were meaningful about anything spiritual, people laughed at you. 
It was a very, very materialistic time. And it wasn't until around about 1989, 1990, where the rave scene started and LSD made a re-entry in terms of the, the rave and drug scene, where people started having these experiences on drugs that felt very spiritual, where there was a reawakening of spiritual interest and things like Eastern influences and things started to come in much more through the 90s and obviously now they're just very much a part of society, yoga, etc. But in the 80s when I was growing up, no one was spiritual. Somebody said you were spiritual, people would laugh at you. Whereas now being spiritual is kind of all the rage. But no one wants to be religious. And what I'm going to do, as I've been, I'll be honest with you, it's a long passage today, I'm going to break it down. But I, I've, it's not been one of those easy weeks where the sermon just comes. It's one of those weeks where you go, wow, where do, how do I, what do I, <laughs> where does this go? Um, uh, thankfully got some relief yesterday evening. It's like, Lord, it's really got to get somewhere here. Um, and I, I feel that the way I want to use the passage today is really to hold up the differences between really knowing God okay, and, and every other kind of uh, religious thing that isn't really knowing God, but it's religious. Do you know what I'm saying? I want to show you the difference and I want to show you it in the interaction between Jesus and these various leaders and what they represent. And I trust and I hope that through it, you will get a really clear sense of what it means to know Jesus and to walk with him. Um, so I'm going to just pray now and then we're going to read um, bit by bit. We're going to look at the whole of Luke chapter 20 today. And I'm going to, we're going to, I'm going to read a bit, preach a bit, read a bit, preach a bit. Okay? And, uh, and uh, you're all here for lunch and the food is cold, so I can go for as long as I like. <laughs> Not really. Let's pray, shall we? Father, thank you for the Bible. Thank you for this written record of um, your dealings with your people. And, and Father, thank you for today's passage. And I pray and I ask you, Lord, that you would help me to be able to communicate clearly your word in a way that really brings life. And we pray, Lord, for the spirit of truth. Holy Spirit, lead us and guide us into all truth today, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So Jesus has cleared the temple and then we're told that he's teaching in the temple towards the end of chapter 19. And we're told the chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him. But they couldn't find anything they could do for all the people were hanging on his word. So now we're going to read from verse 1 to 8 of chapter 20. Here we go. So one day as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel... The chief priests and the scribes with the elders came up and said to him, Tell us by what authority you do these things, or who it is that gave you this authority. He answered them, I'll also ask you a question. Now tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he'll say, well, Why didn't you believe him? If we say from men, the people will stone us to death, for they're convinced John was a prophet. So they answered and, and that they did not know where it came from. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. So what you've got here is a moment of immense dishonesty. Immense dishonesty. The men Jesus is asking about John's baptism, just in case you're not educated in these things, if you've not been around the Bible for long, about six months before Jesus was born, John the Baptist was born, and they were cousins. 
And, and John the Baptist was this kind of, he was this uh, prophetic figure who lived in the wilderness and he wore camel's hair and he ate locusts and he was like, he was like an Old Testament prophet, reminiscent of Elijah. And the Bible actually says he came in the spirit of Elijah. And he, he, had the, he, would, he was baptizing people um, in repentance for their sins to prepare them for the coming of Jesus. But the leaders did not receive him as a prophet, did not follow him, did not go after him. In fact, they were suspicious of him. And Jesus knows that. So Jesus says, he says, well, was, what was what John was doing from God or from men? He knew that they thought it was from men, that this was not from God. But they wouldn't admit it. They would not say what they really thought. As a result, Jesus says, then I'm not going to answer your question. They said to him, by what authority are you doing these things? He said, well, before I just answer you that, because I'm not going to feel cornered into having to answer, I'm going to ask you a question. He asked them, and they are too afraid to say what they really think. As a result, Jesus says, then there's no response from me. The first thing I want to talk about when it comes to dead religion or nonsense spirituality is the lack of honesty. Honesty can be a brutal thing. Anyone followed the life of Liam Neeson the past seven days? you will realize that honesty can be a brutal thing. If you find yourself in a situation where you say what you really think, wisely or unwisely, in whatever the subject's about, I tell you what, you can find all kinds of things suddenly happening around you. Sometimes it's easier to think to yourself, well, if I say that, then they'll say that. If, they say, if I say that, then I'm done for. Oh, I don't know. That's what they did. Jesus is fine. They say, you want to play it? No response from me. If you want to deal with God, you have to get honest. Because the Bible says that he delights in truth in the innermost parts. And so it's so tempting not to be real, isn't it? It's just me. (laughs) Sometimes it's just so tempting to just kind of fake it or to say what you think is going to make everyone happy or say things that you think God will like. What sort of things does God like? What sort of words? God likes words like hallelujah. He loves that word. I'll say that one a lot. That will please him. And well, it might do, but it might not. <gasps> How many people in this room have said hallelujah in their life before? Put your hands up. How many people in this room? It's, it's, I can feel the nerves. You know when it's nervous. You know when it's a nervous survey. Here's why. Because people, instead of doing that, they do that. It's all to do with how high the arm goes. It's, it's a classic. How many, in, how many people in this room know exactly what that word means? It's still, I've got issues with the, with the I, can't, I can't judge this survey, guys. It's, you're, you're leading me along here. I would say, I, I, I guess there's a third of you here that have said hallelujah before. I've got no idea what it means. We can say things, we don't know what they mean. I remember singing about redemption for years, and at one point going, oh, what does that actually mean? It's a vocabulary. We can get into a scenario where you just say things and you just do things. And you know what? Here in this situation that Jesus is saying, if you are not willing to be honest about what you really think, there's no response from me. And I think we live in a very dishonest age. I think people know exactly what you're allowed to say and exactly what you're not. And they are terrified of saying what you're not allowed to say because they will be pilloried. They will be crucified. And so you learn what to say and what not to say. And before you know it, you don't even know what you think anymore. If you don't say what you really think for long enough, in the end, you don't even know what you think. You've just been, you've just been indoctrinated by whatever the current thing is and whatever will make you acceptable. There's a lack of honesty in religiousness. There's a lack of honesty in just vague spirituality. 
and you don't get any response from Jesus. Have you ever wondered, maybe, that maybe you're thinking, heaven seems quiet. Reflect on your honesty levels. Because until you, until you relate to God from the deepest, most honest place, I don't think God quite knows what to do with that. He doesn't deal in dishonesty. Now, I'm not talking about a brazen kind of espousal of distasteful views. I'm not, I'm not encouraging that for a minute, but I'm saying that thing where you're kind of before God and you're honest about, Lord, this is what I'm struggling to believe. Or why is this like this? God can deal with that because it's real, because it is honest. And I just want to say, if you're here and a believer, please keep it real. Don't let it go off somewhere else. Keep it real. And if you're here as a seeker, if you're here as someone who's looking in, you, you've, not yet, you know, you've not yet gone through the waters of baptism, you, you're not, you know, you've not yet committed fully to Christ in that sense and given him your life, let me say this to you, that that's where this thing is going. Reality unlike anything you've ever known before. Honesty, reality, authenticity. Where he peels away the many masks that we've built up over the years and we, and, and we actually get to be in a place of total honesty with God. Jesus is the truth and the truth sets you free. And when you know him and the truth of God in your heart, there's a liberty that comes where you know, well, actually, this is genuinely what I believe. And when you live from a place of conviction, it's liberating. When you live from a place where you're actually not internally lined up with how you're living, you become a conflicted person and you'd have a breakdown on all kinds of stuff. I was meet, met with someone recently who had a real breakdown and we were talking about it and he said, I said, what was that about? He said, I just realized I was living a conflicted life. Who what I was saying and doing on the outside was not actually a true expression of my core conviction beliefs. And it got unsustainable. I just had a meltdown. I think, oh, God have mercy. Something so liberating about honesty with God and, and being taught the truth as it is in Jesus is wonderful. So, lack of honesty versus the truth. Let's read on. Verse 9. And he began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and led it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. And when the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant, but they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent a third. This one also they wounded and cast out. And then the owner of the vineyard said, well, what shall I do? I'll send my beloved son. Perhaps they'll respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, this is the heir, let's kill him. So the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. And, when will the owner of, and what will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. And when they heard this, they said, surely not. But he looked directly at them and said, what then is this that's written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. The scribes and the, and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour. For they perceived that he had told this parable against them. But they feared the people. So what happens here, you see, is that Jesus now tells a parable. We have lack of honesty, number one. Here we've got lack of humility. A little bit of explanation. In the Old Testament, Israel is described as God's vineyard. 
It's a vineyard that God planted, this nation that he chose. He planted this vineyard and he, and, he, and he put protection around it and he cared about it. And his plan was to make that fruitful. And he entrusted it, obviously, to certain leaders, kings and judges and others that, that were raised up by God to look after his people. And so what we've got here is Jesus speaking to the leaders and to the rulers who, who, who at this time are responsible for the people of Israel. And he's basically accusing them of the fact that they've killed the prophets that have come you know, in the, in the past and now they're about to kill him as, as the beloved son of the owner of the vineyard. He's basically prophesying what's about to happen to him. And what he's nailing them for is he's saying, you feel that you are entitled to this position. You feel that, that, that somehow God has raised you up and entitled you and you think it's yours and, you are, and you've got into a mentality of selfish gain in terms of you will get what you can from these people. And God, but it's not your people, it's God's people. And God has sent prophets to tell you and to warn you, and they've been and they've been wounded and cast out and killed. And now we send in his own son. And guess what's about to happen to him? He himself is about to be killed. And Jesus is nailing their self-importance and their entitlement. And what you tend to find with dead religion is exactly this. This sense of I'm chosen by God. I'm better than you. I'm more important than you. One of the things people most hate about religion that has turned people off is that they've been around people of faith and they've felt that somehow they are less worthy or somehow they're not quite as something or somehow they they are, I don't know, fundamentally in some kind of fundamental way less holy or less deserving than these people and people have gone, ugh. And you know what? God says the same. God says, ugh. Whenever his people carry self-righteousness in them, whenever they have that thing about them where somehow they, they carry themselves in a way which makes them kind of in some way aloof from others, God absolutely hates it. Absolutely hates it. And, and what we see here is, is that Jesus, Jesus changes the metaphor from vineyard to building halfway through and he, and he talks about this, this stone that the builders have gone, nah. You're building, it, you're building back in the day, you pick up a stone. If you've ever done, laid a brick wall or something, you pick up a brick, you go, oh no, we're not having that one on there. Don't want that. And he's saying there was a stone and they've gone, nah. And God's gone, oh yeah. And he's actually laid it as the cornerstone. Now in the, in the old days, a cornerstone was, was the foundation of the foundation. It was your foundation. You laid that one first and then the whole of the building was determined by that cornerstone. It set the trajectory, it set the shape, it set everything. And Jesus, Jesus is now referring to himself as the stone that was rejected by the, by the Jewish religious leaders, by the Roman leaders, by all the leaders rejected him. No, no one that one. And God says, no, this is the one. This is the cornerstone here. You see, and then he says this quite scary thing. He says, "He says, um, those upon whom those who fall upon this stone will be broken to pieces, but those upon whom it falls will be scattered to dust." And what he's saying is this: one way or another, if you really want to know God, the only way to know God is through Jesus, because Jesus is the stone that God has chosen, the cornerstone upon whom God is building everything. All that he is building is being built on Christ. You want to know Jesus, one way or another, it will result in you being broken. Now this isn't bad news, guys, okay? Let me explain why it's really good news. Because from the moment we're born, essentially, as we begin to work out how life works, and where the Bible says that we are born separated from God, and so we're trying to figure out Life, and we're trying to figure out who we are. 
And we kind of create a persona of who we are and who we want to be. And we take bits of this and bits of that. But actually, very, very often, it's not who God has really made us to be. And so we end up carrying all kinds of stuff that we've kind of created this sense of identity that makes us feel significant, makes us feel meaningful. And yet, it's not actually, it's not actually God's pattern for who we are. And when we come and we fall on Jesus, you know, we're broken to pieces. But what that then does is that then creates the scenario where God can put us back together in the right shape on Jesus. And when you've let God do that with you, it's very, very hard to be self-important and spiritually arrogant and aloof after that. Because you just know, God, you've done an amazing work in me and it's all by your grace. And it, it just changes the way you understand God, yourself, others. You, it's, it's, it's really hard to look on others as worse than you when you know that God is actually the one who's putting you back together. It's just a very liberating thing. And this is the difference between religiosity, dead religion, and truly knowing God and being built on the stone that was rejected. And Jesus, Jesus can talk about brokenness because he himself was broken at the cross. You see, Jesus can talk about being broken and it doesn't come across in a way that makes you feel, well, what do you know about it? He knows everything about it. He's more broken than anyone has ever been. He was broken at the cross, utterly. But the Bible says that he was marred beyond human likeness at the cross. He was so weighed down with our sins and with the sins of the world that he said he's the kind of person people would look at him and think, that person is cursed by God. And they would want to turn, not even look. You know, sometimes you see a situation of such suffering, you think, oh, I can't even look at that. It, it, you know that feeling? You think, I can't even look at that. It messes with my soul so much. On the cross, that was Jesus, utterly broken. Why? To make a way for us to be put back together again. Hallelujah. This is our King. This is our Saviour. But the tension is rising, as you can imagine. They know it's against them, and now they want to kill him. Next conversation. So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere and they might catch him in something he said so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. They asked him, teacher, we know you speak and teach rightly and you don't show any partiality but you truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? But he perceived their craftiness and said to them, show me a denarius. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? They said, Caesar's. He said to them, well, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they were not able in the presence of the people to catch him in what he said. But marveling at his answer, they became silent. So here, here's a situation. You're in a country, it's been overrun by another force, it's been overrun by the Romans. And it's a polarised country politically. You've got some Jews that are wanting to really just kind of adapt to the new situation. They want to just get on with it, pay their taxes to Rome. They want to become culturised by the Greek way of understanding life. And then you've got those who are saying, no, we are distinct culturally, spiritually. We want to hold on and preserve all that God has done for us. We want to resist this. So it's a politically polarised country. Sound familiar? It's a very political situation. And they want to catch Jesus in a trap. Let's get, let's, let's categorize him. Let's find out which side is he on. Lack of, um, sorry, dead religion always has a lack of perspective. 
A lack of perspective. Jesus will not be categorised politically. He will not be drawn in to such things. You can see where I'm going here. He won't do it. He says, oh, well, whose who's faith is on this? He says, oh, yeah, well, just give to Caesar what's Caesar's, give to God's what's God's. And I'm like, what does that mean? It's deliberately enigmatic. The whole point of it is to just say, I'm not going to be trapped by you. I won't be trapped by this thing you're trying to suck me into, this snare you are trying to get me into. You see, it's so easy to get caught up with temporary political realities. Isn't it? Now they do matter, but they don't matter ultimately. And when you know God, when you really know God through Jesus Christ, you know what? You are able to remain engaged with that stuff, but at the same time, rise above it. And it's a very powerful testimony to those who don't have that God-given perspective when they find a people who do care, but are not staying up at night with anxiety because they know there is a government that is eternal and that is being built and Jesus is at the head of it. I thought I'd hear at least a few more amens after that. I mean, wow. Do you believe, I mean, this is massive. I mean, this is a real, this is a, we live in an amazing moment. Did you know it didn't used to be quite like this? Did you know that? Politically, it never used to be quite so charged. It never used to be quite so polarizing. It never used to be quite so extreme. Um, and it's not just in the UK. Obviously, you've got, you've got all, all, the whole thing around Trump in the USA. You've got, you've got many general elections throughout Europe that kind of have this kind of polarizing thing going on in a way they never used to. We live in a, we, you've got to discern the time. You've got to discern the moment and say, what do, what do we have who actually know God? What do we have to contribute into this? The main thing we have to contribute into is that we are part of a kingdom that cannot be shaken. That we are part of something that, is, that transcends it and that of his government, Jesus's, and of peace, there will be no end to the increase of it. And so you live and walk in a confidence. It matters. We pray about these things. We care about these things. But we will not be dominated by these things. We will not be categorized by these things. We operate, we exist in a different category. A transcendent category. One that is really constantly excited year on year, no matter what happens politically, about the increasing government of Jesus. Because that... God's will and God's plan is to bring everything together under him. That's the plan and purpose of God. And so Christians have this steadfastness about them. When you really know God, even if, imagine if suddenly all the, all the divisions and polarizings changed and everyone had the same idea, but it wasn't under Jesus. In a, in a different way, that's just as tragic. That's just as tragic. Because the plan of God is to bring everything together under the head and the king that he has established, who is Jesus Christ. Jesus is the heir of the nations of the world. This, this, is, this transcends politics, but it is very, very relevant to politics. And it's, it's, I think it's time for us, if you're here as a believer, it's time for us to start talking about the government of Jesus. Because there's a lot of political conversations going on. Don't, maybe it's wiser to use the word government if it just sounds more relevant. <laughs> Then kingdom, kingdom was under like, whoa, you know, it's this king, government, government of Jesus, same thing, same idea. The rule and reign of Jesus, that's what we're excited about. And every time someone comes to know God through Jesus Christ, the government of Jesus extends. And that's a wonderful thing.
And, so, and we've got to be those who refuse to be drawn into nonsense politically. Refuse to be drawn into immature categorization and, and, and polarization and where we lose the main thing in this. We're going to be engaged in it. But you know, let's keep the main thing the main thing. Amen, Steph. <laughs> I'm just going to start encouraging myself now because there's something wrong today. But I'm going to press. I don't need a clap. Just an amen, all right? All right, verse 27. Are you still with me? All right, we're getting near the end, which you'll be sad about. Okay. Verse 27, there came to him some Sadducees. Now, this one's a little bit unusual, so I'll explain it to you once I've read it. Those who denied that there's a resurrection, and they asked him a question saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, having a wife but no children, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died without children. And the second and the third took her. And likewise, all seven left no children and died. Afterward, the woman also died. Um, In the resurrection, uh, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For the seven had her as wife. Jesus said to them, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage, for they cannot die anymore. They are equal to angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the bush, where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now he is not God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. And then some of the scribes answered, Teacher, you've spoken well, for they no longer dared to ask him any question. But he said to them, Well, how can they say the Christ is David's son? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David thus calls him Lord. So how is, how is he his son? Now, it's a bit of an unusual conversation, interaction. So let me explain what's going on here. We're told that the Sadducees and the Pharisees were kind of, um, that they were both, I guess, religious sects, quite strict in some ways, particularly the Pharisees. But they, the, the difference between a Pharisee and a Sadducee were essentially two main differences. Number one, the Pharisees believed in angels and demons, things like that. Sadducees didn't. The Pharisees believed in the resurrection, in the afterlife. The Sadducees didn't. And so these Sadducees come and they present a scenario. Now there was something in the Old Testament called leveret marriage, which, whereby what would happen is, as it says here, if, um, if, 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 if a man and a woman got married and then if the, if the man was to die, then it was the brother of the man's responsibility to marry his, his widow in order that she may have offspring that are still part of the same family, in order that as she, was, as she gets older, that she is then able to be looked after by her son as he's grown up in a patriarchal society. It was a provision to make sure that if someone, a woman was widowed, she wasn't left vulnerable. So culturally to us it seems a bit unusual, but it was a provision of God to make sure there was provision and care. And so they create this hypothetical scenario where, I mean, to be honest, by the time brother number three or brother number four dies, I don't think brother number five wants to get involved, right? They, you know, you know, if I'm, you know, just imagine you think, hold on a minute, everyone who marries this woman dies. <laughs> you know, you know, but anyway, it's a hypothetical scenario and there it is. So all seven marry, but none of them, uh, there's no offspring. And then they're saying, you know, in the resurrection, you can see them rolling their eyes, you know, in the resurrection. Who's she going to be married to? And Jesus basically says, you lot are clueless. You're just utterly clueless in every way. Number one, number one, in the resurrection, 
those who attain to the resurrection, people don't get married and are not married in the coming age. Okay? So marriage does not exist in the coming age because we are married to one in the coming age, Jesus. Hence all other marriages, which are really just a signpost to that great marriage, have, have, have done their job and now we move from the shadow to the substance. We are united with him forevermore, which is what all marriages essentially point to. So we're in the real marriage, the eternal lasting marriage. But then he says to them, and I just want you to know by the way, and he shows them a scripture um, about Moses referring to God as God of, God of Abraham. He says, but if he's the God of Abraham, who died hundreds of years before, God is not the God of the dead, he's the God of the living. Therefore, Abraham must still be alive. Therefore, there is the afterlife. And he, he shows them through scripture that there is a resurrection. And then he quizzes them on a scripture where he says, you keep saying the Messiah is David's son, but David calls him Lord. And what he's doing is basically saying, you guys do not read the Bible. And so you're clueless. So what is he doing? <laughs> Dead religion loves traditions. Or oh, we've always done it this way. No one knows why, but we've always done it this way. None of us know why. None of us can find in the Bible why we do it. We just, this is what we do. Knowing God says, no, this is the word of God. How does he want us to live? If you want to know God, there's a, there's, a, there's a seriousness about Scripture. If there are things that we do that we can't point to why we do them in Scripture, let me suggest to you that we stop doing them. We love being questioned on why we do what we do because it helps us to make sure we're still doing the stuff that's in the Bible and not just straying off into other things. It's ever so important. I tell you what, my heart breaks over sincere believers that I've spoken to who say things like, I just want to be in a church where they teach the Bible. And you can feel their pain because they've got a heart to follow God. But they've been told so many different things by different preachers, they don't know what's true anymore. It's heartbreaking, it's tragic. God has not left us without guidance. And it... it, it to, to, to know God and to walk with him, uh, 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 a real engagement with scripture is absolutely vital. Because it won't do when you stand before Jesus and you say, yeah, well, I was doing that because the preacher said. And then God will say, yeah, but you had a Bible. Oh, yeah, I know, but, but the preacher said, no, no, you had a Bible. Whenever you get one of these things put in your hands, you suddenly become accountable. The preacher said it's not good enough. Because the preacher operates under, under an authority, the Bible. Okay? I, I do not, I'm not up here to wet my opinions. If that's what we're doing, go home. They won't be worth it. I can guarantee it. My opinions are not worth toffee. They're not. Just opinions. Just opinions. Don't come and listen to that. We're preaching the Bible. It's the authoritative word of God. Right? So engage with the Bible. Engage with the Bible. Learn to love the Bible. I was thinking about this the other day. I was thinking, how do you... I think, I think to myself, one of my intense daydreams walking on the street, I was thinking, how do you get people to read the Bible? And I sort of came up with this really dramatic conclusion, which is quite typical. But it went a little bit like this. I sort of thought, until you can get someone to actually, um, actually enjoy the Bible as leisure, it's never going to happen. That's, that's where I came to. Until, until, until there's enjoyment in it, 
It's never going to happen. And then my mind went to, how do you get people to enjoy the Bible? And I thought to myself, well, when you're born again, the Holy Spirit comes in you who loves the word of God. So there's a part of you that really does love and want to know the Bible better. But there's another part of you called the flesh that is not interested. Just isn't, right? And so then you say to yourself, okay. So then my daydream went on. And I say, how do you help people whose appetites are just geared towards fleshly stuff to, to, to kind of... Um, to kind of develop their spiritual appetite to love the Bible. And then the next thing I said to myself, I thought, could I say that? So I'm going to say it. I said, I said to myself, I think it would take about three years. That's what I said to myself. I think it would take about three years because to change your appetites involves work. And to change, you know, you know about me and sugar. It's been a bit of an ongoing thing. I just love it. And... Um, to change my appetites, it, it's work and it's ongoing work, but then this, the, the moment comes where you go, actually, this satsuma tastes okay. It's a big moment. You go, it's actually all right. You know? and, but there's a process of changing the appetite from custard cream to satsuma. That there, there's some, it's a journey there. It's a, it's a, spiritually, it's just the same. If you're just used to literally all, all, and it's not just wrong, there's wrong stuff, there's wrong stuff, you know, porn and vile things and stuff like that. There's definitely that that we've, by the Holy Spirit's power, got to learn to walk out of. And then there's other stuff that's, it's not wrong, it's, it's good stuff, it's, it's fine, but actually it maybe just dominates our heart a bit much. Do you know what I mean? You just, you just go to it. It's not wrong, but you just go to it. And, it's, and, and, and to, to, to move from that to a place where you, where, where, where scripture, you, where your, your taste buds go, oh, there's a journey there. And not only that, there's a spiritual battle. So that, it's this battle involved because spiritual realities, there's no way the enemy of your soul wants you enjoying scripture. And I would just be really honest now, I would say probably eight times out of ten before I go to read the Bible, I really don't want to. he just say that yeah I'd say about eight times out of ten I think ah, I don't want to do this all kinds of reasons all kinds of reasons that's not the issue the issue is what do I then, then do in that moment that's the issue isn't it and then there's the one where you read your Bible but you don't really read it you know that one you go I read my Bible you're not really reading it you're just reading it to say that you've read it you know that one okay. you know that one not good right so then there's that one where you go and I'm going to read it and I'm going to keep I'm going to stay here I'm going to stay here. When you're doing that, some, you change your appetite. And then you get to the point where you love Scripture. That, that is very, very dangerous for the kingdom of darkness. Because you start hoovering it up. You start going, oh, oh, that reminds me of that. Oh, yeah, oh, oh, yeah. wow, look at what God's doing. And you get into that. That's where you want to be. Now, there's seasons. Sometimes we're in season, sometimes we're out season. I'm not trying to paint a picture that's a little bit, you know, kind of um, stark. There's seasons, but there's a general trajectory where we all want to be journeying that way. 
Yeah, we all want to be working and walking that way. If we can, if the Lord, can, if we can receive from, help from the Lord doing that, we begin to walk in authentic, powerful spirituality, where you begin those thoughts that come in that are not true, that are lies, that are debilitating. You begin to knock them out and bash them away, and you get through, and you and you begin to your, your power grows to grasp the love of God for you and that His fatherly tenderness, and you begin believing that more and more, and you want to draw near to Him, and you want to pray. It's, that's but that is a process you, you have to engage with. And, you know, we're charismatic Christians. We, we wanna, you want to come to the front now. You want someone to go donk on your head and it's all fixed. I know how it works. I am a charismatic Christian. If only. I believe in impartation. I believe in laying on hands and all of that. But I also believe in a loving father who wants to discipline us to maturity and actually wants to, has to embrace the process where we grow out of certain things and into other things. Because he knows what's good for us. And so, you know, there it is. Those are the four points. Lack of honesty versus authenticity. Lack of humility versus being, being broken on, on Jesus. Um, lack of perspective. Political anxieties and all that. Versus confidence in the government of Jesus Christ. Senseless traditions, and I don't know why I'm doing this, someone just told me to, or the preacher said, or the guru said, or this, that, the other, versus this is what the word of God says. And it sums up, we sum it up with these last couple of verses from the chapter. Um, so the end of chapter 20. Uh, oh dear, it's brutal. Verse 45. And in the hearing of all the people, so he says it really loud. <laughs> So this is the cipher's bit really loud. Beware of the scribes. They like to walk around in long robes. They love greetings in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honour at feasts. And they devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. Yeah, they all. Oh. Jesus is basically saying... If you want to get into spiritual religious things for either prestige or money, you are in trouble. Because that's not what it's for. Okay? If you want to develop in some way, if you want to play a certain role in church life or whatever so that people think you're something or this or that, nonsense, you're heading down the wrong road. And sometimes you hear stories, you know, of people that, you know, you hear stories of widows or, you know, or people with next to nothing. And they've been at church and, you know, the pastor's said terribly wicked, harsh things about giving to people that have got nothing to even give. And so they, they give and they give out of money they haven't even got, out of some kind of crazy superstitious guilt, fear thing. And have nothing left, even less left afterwards to feed their children. And I tell you, those pastors are in for a greater condemnation. It is vile. It is evil. It is wrong. And, and, and just that whole spirit of wanting to somehow appear that you're somehow beyond everyone else. Or, oh yeah, all this, that and the other pastor. It's nonsense. Absolute nonsense. It's crazy. We are the body of Christ. All of us. We are the bo- if you believe in Jesus, you're joined to him. We are the body of Christ. We are brothers and we are sisters. We have different roles to play. 
And we are gifted in grace to play those roles. But we are brothers and sisters. We are family. We are all on the same level. All with the same access to God through Jesus Christ. He is the high priest. His prayers count more special. Pastors don't. His prayers are more special. Our prayers are the prayers of the saints. That's the true way. That's the new covenant way. That's the life-giving way. Amen? Amen. Let's respond. Let's do something good for the glory of God. Maybe the musicians could come up and Rich, you feel anything particular? I'm happy to lead into if not. Okay. I want to stand to our feet. Maybe you just need to be freshly honest with God. Just talk to him. Just talk to him. Just get real. Maybe you've never got real. Maybe today you need to, I want to get real with God and follow Jesus. Maybe there's you know that you've just been getting into strange kind of prideful stuff, entitlement, self-importance. You just want to freshly humble yourself under God's mighty hand maybe you've been getting wound up about the political situation it's got into you in a way that it shouldn't and you've lost sight of the government of Jesus Christ maybe you've been neglecting scripture and you're like oh Lord I want, I want to grow in that hunger maybe the musicians could just maybe just lead us in a bit of, a bit of music we'll sing a song in a moment but why don't we where we are let's talk to him we have access to him isn't that, I mean, it's incredible. We have access to the most holy place through the blood of Jesus. We can come and talk to God and he hears us as we are because of what Christ has done. That's an immense privilege. That's extraordinary. Why don't we tell him what's going on in our hearts? Maybe you've never cried out to him. Maybe for you don't know how to pray. You've never, you think, what do I do? The Bible says if you call on the name of Jesus from a repentant heart and out of a place of earnest faith, he will rescue you. He will deliver you. He will save you. He will make you brand new. So you just call on Jesus. Say, Jesus, save me. Jesus, rescue me. Jesus, forgive me. I want to know you. I want to follow you. Why don't we just raise our voices together and talk to the Lord for a minute or two while the music's just playing. Don't worry about other people. No one's listening to you right now. Let's just pray. Let's pray. to you now Lord we're looking to you we're gathered around your throne we're gathered around your your headship your lordship your glory we're gathered around you in all your mercy and love we just want to bless you and thank you for your greatness for your holiness for your glory for your power and might we thank you for all that you are that you are the living one you are the one who's been established by the father as lord of all you've been given the name above every name and we honor you King Jesus and we want to walk with you, Lord, in truth. We want to walk with you in the light. We want to walk with you in honesty. We want to walk with you in reality and authenticity. Lord, we don't want to fiddle around with nonsense and play games, Lord. We thank you, you are the living God and the God of truth. And that if we will deal with you in truth, then, Lord, you will deal with us in truth, Lord God. And so I pray, I pray, oh Lord, as we talk to you, as we sing to you, as we take bread and wine and minister to 
one another and pray with one another. We pray we would know your real living presence among us. We welcome you, Lord. We welcome your living presence among us. Come, Lord Jesus. By your spirit, we pray. Amen.